So if you have your Bibles tonight, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. We made it through verse 11, and uh, so we'll be picking it up right there in verse 12. We're looking at the gifts of the Holy Spirit in chapters 12, 13, and 14. The Apostle Paul is bringing clarity to this uh, amazing opportunity that believers have to walk in the Spirit, to enjoy the things of God in a very special way. And it was uh, another reminder for me of the importance of living and walking in the Holy Spirit. We spent a couple weeks getting up to this point. We spent a little time looking at and dissecting a little more uh, what the gifts of the Spirit are. And as we were doing that, it just reminded me of the fact that some may be thinking or saying, well, how do I walk in the Spirit? How does that happen? And I think it's good just to touch on that for a minute. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a believer in Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit drew you to Christ. And at some point, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. And when that happened, you became born again. The Holy Spirit came and took residence inside of you. Also, at that point, God gave you spiritual gifts to operate your life that you're now going to live by faith in Jesus. You're going to have gifts that He, he has given you the, to operate in that will bear spiritual fruit. And so then the question is, as, as a believer, the Bible says that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what that is referencing to is that we are to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that if we ask, that He will give us the Holy Spirit. In a sense where that we can constantly be aware of our need to have the Holy Spirit be in control of our life. And so we can ask, Lord, I have your Holy Spirit, but I want the Holy Spirit to have me. And that's, I think, really what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit. It, it means that we are relinquishing control of ourselves to God and la- allowing God to be in control instead of ourself being in control. And it, it's interesting because it's very frequent that I have conversations with people, I'll say even, let's just say in our church, they'll come and talk to me. And they'll tell me about things that they're going to do. So just generally, well, I think I'm going to move, or I think I'm going to change churches, or I think I'm going to get a new job, or I think I'm going to go to school. And then they tell me the reasons why. And really to be led by the Holy Spirit is to stop doing that and say, Lord, what is your will for me? So as believers, we have to take off the table this idea where now we're in control of making all our decisions. Because what happens when we do that is, really, we could be filled with the Holy Spirit, but we're just doing our own thing, no different than when we were not saved at all. We're just doing our own thing. But see, when we're led by the Spirit, what we're doing is we're surrendering our will to God and we're saying, Lord, your will be done. So we don't have the option of saying, well, I'm deciding to do this, or I'm deciding to do this. 
but we say, Lord, what is your will? And that has, for me personally, kept me going in the ministry through the thousands of times where I've said, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too hard. I want to quit. I can't go on anymore. But the thing that it kept me was that I realized that God wasn't calling me to do something else. And even when I may say, Lord, you're invited to call me to do something else. I'm open to that. But he never did. And I'm so glad because if we never see through what God has called us to do, we will never experience what 1 John chapter 2 says, that through our obedience, the love of God is perfected in us. It's the maturing of God's love in us. So when we get to understand that our life is no longer ours, but it's Christ's. And so the decisions of our life now are to be surrendered to him. And we just say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? I don't like my job. I don't want to stay here anymore. I don't. But Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to stay here? If you do, I'm trusting that you will strengthen me and you have a plan here for me. Or Lord, are you calling me to to get out of this job or calling me to do something? And really, that is what I believe is the most important aspect of understanding how to experience the fullness of the working of the Spirit in our life. And so when we start to live by that, that's really what Paul is saying in Galatians, that the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. So that's how the control is shifted to God and the Holy Spirit begins to lead and guide and direct our life and our life begins to take shape as God's workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so he's already got it mapped out. And so much of our time should be in seeking the Lord's will for our life in our decisions. That's where we spend all of our time. And in John 10, it says that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And so we seek the Lord. We diligently seek him. And when we're pressed to make decisions, and many of those times that we're pressed to make decisions is because we're going through something difficult or hard and we don't want to. And biblically, we see that typically that's how the Lord leads us. That's normal. It's normal to be stretched. It's normal to be sanctified. Sanctified is a process of being separated from our self-will and our uh, love for the, our life in this world. And it's painful. It's, it's hard. It's the denying of ourself. But this brings about a whole dimension of our life that God desires for us to have and that's what we're looking at in regards to the gift and leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. Now when I first got saved I was in a particular church that the person that led me to the Lord took me to because that was the church that he went to and so begin to learn about the Lord, and it was, I would say, mainly intellectual and a- academic. And it was, it was uh, several years after that that I stumbled across Calvary Chapel. And I remember there was a character and a quality that was distinctly different in the Calvary Chapel that I went to. And it was now what I understand is the moving of the Spirit in the lives of the people there at that church. And it was this easiness about the people there. 
It was a simpleness. It was a love. It was a a sense of of trusting, and it was a sense that Jesus was in control. And that was very appealing to me. And I didn't quite know what that was until later I was taking a road trip by myself, and I started to play some tapes cassette tapes in my six-hour drive from Southern California to Mammoth, California. And I popped in Chuck Smith's series on the Holy Spirit. And that's where I realized that's what's going on at that church. That's why there's such a powerful work of God going on, but it's just this gentle move of love of the Spirit that's going on in the lives of the people, and then I got it. And by the way, that you, can, you can listen to that. Um, there's a Word for Today, the Word for Today app. And there's many places to get it, but he has a whole series on the Holy Spirit, like 20 messages or something. But I remember when I was listening to those tapes and I was thinking wow if all of those things are potentially available to me then I would like to have whatever God wants me to have I would like to as it says at the end of chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians um, I I would desire to have the gifts all the gifts if that's possible So I began to pray, and as I began to pray, I had an experience of, I would say, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I'll never forget that because it helped me to understand that being a Christian wasn't just having facts and information and studying until my eyeballs fall out, but there was a power that would enable me to carry out the things of God in my life. And I've depended on that ever since. Alan Redpath had a quote that I really like. He said, Unfortunately, how often we meet professing Christians today who have no power in their witness, no radiance in their faces, no sweetness in their personalities, in reality, there's, their spiritual lives are dead. They are indwelt by the Spirit of God, but they're not anointed. The Holy Spirit is in them, but not upon them in power and in reality. And that sums up what I the, the distinction that I notice from the church that I went to when I first got saved to when I went to the Calvary Chapel. It was the, the working, the movement, movement of the Spirit. It was this joy. It was this sort of peace. It was love. And I realized that's, that's the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is, this is amazing. So, I don't know if when you first started coming to our church, that's what you experienced, but I hope so. And if not, we need to read this again and study this because this is what God wants for us and he wants it for you. So starting in verse 12 of chapter 12, it says, For as the body is one, and has many members, but all the members of that body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. And so in the first part of chapter 12, the emphasis was on the gifts and the diversities of gifts. So that was the emphasis 
chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. It was the emphasis on all these different gifts. And so we covered that. Now you'll notice the emphasis shifts a little bit to where the emphasis now is on the members. For example, members of a body, the different members, body parts that we have, which is a metaphor for the different people. So previously, the emphasis was on the different gifts. Now, the emphasis is on the different people that have the different gifts. So he says in verse 13, For by one Spirit, and that's, what, that's what's important, that's the unity, that's the commonality, we are all baptized into one body, whether it be Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. The church, also known, as we see the metaphor here, as the body of Christ, is the only place on planet Earth this side of heaven to where there is an equalness where all divisions and barriers have been broken down where we are truly because we are in Christ. That's what he means when he says we are all baptized in Christ. That means that we're all immersed into God. And because of that, there's different people from different walks of life, different stations of life, different backgrounds, different geographical locations that we come from. But the body of Christ is one in Christ. There's, there's no distinction. Imagine in Corinth where there are heavy distinctions, a Jew or a Greek. That was a big dividing line. Or imagine you're a slave in Corinth, which are, there are many slaves, and a free person in Corinth. And then you come into the church, the body of Christ, and it's the slave sitting next to the free person. And God says, you're in Christ, and you are, there is no distinction between you. You are on the same level playing field. You are equally loved, valued, and adored by God. That would blow their minds. But we're, we see now there are things in this world that will never go away until Jesus comes back, and it's the distinctions that people have. We're seeing a flare-up. of It's really becoming a religious war in the Middle East. And we're seeing these distinctions between religions and between geographical locations. And in our society, we've had a big ramp up in the last few years that really, in my view, have put up more dividing lines, bringing in critical race theory and all those other ways to look at life and to look at people. But in the church, there's just no place for any of that. If anybody harbors or holds or has any sort of uh, prejudice or racial uh, hatred or anything, there's no place in the church like that. And if someone's not willing to repent of that, there's a very big question of whether they're even saved or not because you can't hold that hatred towards a person in your heart and truly be saved. They can't coexist at the same time. And if you're unrepentant of that, but this is the beauty of the church. This is what's so special about the church. Is it's a, a picture, in a way, it's a picture of heaven. And so a church body, particularly, we have the, the universal church, which is a church worldwide, and then you have local churches. So local churches, there should be no distinction. It should be a place where anybody who crosses the threshold of that door and and enters into this body of people in fellowship, they're all on the same 
playing field. Same equal playing field. In verse 14, he says, For in fact, the body is not one member, but it's, it's many. And do you know many people don't see themselves as having a role in the local body? This is what Paul is trying to stress, is that to be a Christian means to be participating in the body of Christ, in the local body of Christ. It means to have an active role in a corporate body of Christ. And he's stressing that it's not one person and then everybody watching that one person use their gift. But to have a functioning church body, just like it would be proper to have a functioning human body properly, that every part would have to do its part. So he says, and he, gives, he goes with this metaphor, he says, if, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? See, now he's talking about someone who may feel insignificant. Someone who would say, well, I, I feel like more of a heel than I do of a hand. And I see all these hands and they're out there, they're visible, and they're grabbing things, and they're motioning, and they're pointing, and doing all these things. And here I am tucked away in my little shoe, and nobody sees me. There is a tendency for that person to feel as if there's no purpose or need for them, and so there's no point of doing anything. They may feel as if church and service in church is for other people. It's for the hands. But as Paul's using this metaphor, he's saying, well, what would that be like? What would, what would that be like if we are all just a bunch of hands? We need feet, don't we? We need all of the parts operating. So he says in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not the hand, am I not of this body? Is it not therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? What he's saying is, notice the particular ear and eye and, and nose. These are vital things, right? These are vital, not necessarily like our vital organs, but he's saying boy, it would be really terrible if we couldn't smell anything. Or it would be really terrible if we were just a nose and we can smell everything. That would be really terrible. And we couldn't see what we're smelling. And we couldn't hear what we're smelling. That would be terrible. So is he saying there's interdependence? It's amazing how interdependent we are. These are essential things. Each one of us are essential to the body of Christ. He says in verse 18, But now God has set the member, each one of them, in the body, notice this, just as who pleased. Just as He pleased. So that means God is responsible for placing us in particular places 
in the body of Christ. That's not what we do. So we don't try to work to be a part, a certain part of the body. If I'm a ear, I don't go to school longer and get my degree so I can be an eye. God chooses what our gift is, and he chooses the place that we use our gift. Now, that helps us understand how important it is for us to pray about where God leads us to fellowship, about where God, his place, and the decisions that we make in our life. Because here it says that God places and God ordains and he does it as he pleases, meaning he has a plan and a will. He's orchestrating a plan and a will. And our job is to surrender to his plan and his will so he can bring about that plan. So again, doing our own thing independently of God means... We will be like the Corinthians in that they were carnal. They were fleshly. They were just doing their own thing. And what was the result of that? Divisions. They were divided. Why? They're just doing their own thing. Regardless of God leading and directing. And then when you have a whole bunch of people just doing their own thing, what do you have? You have chaos where you have no king, so everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And when we got saved, our king is Jesus. And so now we follow him, and when we follow him, he brings this incredible symphony of gifts together in order to bless and build up his body, which is the bride of Christ. In verse 19, it says, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. So how interdependent are we on each other? Isn't that something? Our Christian life is not lived in a silo. It's not lived off the grid. Whether we like it or not, our Christian life is to be lived in connection with other believers. And this is how the body of Christ works. That's why there's always an attack on the church coming together and meeting together. There's always a temptation to not intermingle with the body of Christ, to have an incorrect view of Christianity to where I can just do it on my own and I don't need the church. That is absolutely wrong. And we're reading it here. We are independently dependent on one another. We are intertwined in a mystical, spiritual way. And when you start to understand the church body like that, you start to realize Boy, we, we don't have the right to make our own decisions about things. We need to listen to the Lord and let him lead us. In verse 21, he says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, hand. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So now he's talking about where before someone who feels that their role and gift is insignificant, now he's talking to people that they may have a more visible or prominent role and have a tendency to look down on somebody else in a way of thinking, well, my role is the big shot role. Your role is the little shot role. And he's saying you can't do that. Because we're all just parts. None of us are whole. But together we are. 
together God has fitted us and is fitting us together perfectly in His will so that together we're whole, but an individual part is not a whole. What a perfect metaphor to understand the body of Christ like our human body. Verse 22, he says, No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. So what he's saying there is that every gift has a particular place for that gift. Just like now there are certain parts, say again the feet. So generally we cover our feet or other areas that we wear clothing to because we're being modest and we don't want that hanging out maybe. He's saying that means that every gift should be used in a particular way where the gift has a particular place. So there are some gifts that are behind the scenes. Usually behind the scenes people, if you ever force them into the front of the scene, that wouldn't be a good thing. And vice versa. So that what he's saying is there's a place, just like all of our members of our body are vital and important and needed, but they also have a place for all of those. And the point is that we should be content instead of being jealous or striving to have someone else's gift or someone else's role, but we should be thankful because... God knows best and he's put us where it's best for us to operate and function where we can have the most satisfactory experience and ability to be effective in the things of God. So it takes all of us. It takes all of the body of Christ. In verse 24, he says, But your presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. So a part that we may seem in the church, a gift that may not seem like the most important part, he's saying that that's the part that gets the most honor. The key is to be faithful to what God has called us to do. That's it. And be content and thrive in your area of giftedness as you surrender and let God lead your life and let Him direct you in your life, you will find a fullness and a satisfaction and a fruitfulness that comes as God uses your life in the particular way that He's called it to be used. Verse 25, that there should be no schism or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. So there should be no preferential treatment. And if one member suffers, what happens? All the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So that's an amazing thing. So if I fell off this stool and broke my wrist, my whole body would suffer. It wouldn't just be my wrist hurts. It'd be, well, now I can't hold my Bible. Now I can't point at you. Now I can't point to heaven. Now I'm in pain. If you ever broke a bone... You feel like you're going to get sick, maybe. Your whole body now responds to that pain. I remember I broke my wrist one time, and I bent it backwards when I was, I think, sixth grade or something. And I was afraid to tell my parents 
because I was at a roller skating rink. Remember when roller skating was big back in, um, I don't want to say when, but, and uh, I didn't want to tell him, but uh, I was trying to suck it up. But as time went on, I started getting sick (laughs) and I had to tell my parents and they took me to the hospital and I broke my wrist. My whole body was affected. And then they put a cast on and then, you know, I couldn't do things the way I wanted. But that's, that's what he's saying. But on the flip side, if someone in our congregation is honored and doing well, we all are honored and we're all doing well. So we should be able to take something that God is doing in someone's life well And we should all be able to participate in that. It should be a whole thing. We're like, wow, he's part of our body. She's part of our body. This is all our award or all our fruit or all our achievement. It's like the the chili cook-off. Perfect example. It's just like a, it was like a, a microcosm of what we're talking about. There's all these different gifts. Some of your gifts, I didn't even know you had those gifts. But you can just watch people and see the gift of helps, to see the gift of teaching, instruction, leadership, administration, eating. Is that a spiritual gift? I don't, th- I don't think that's one. But it was, a, and, and what you see is all these different people working together. And what was the result? It was blessing. These the police were blown away. Uh, those who came were blown away. And the people that served, if you serve, were you blessed? It was, it was like amazing because you got to experience God working through you just to, to serve and do something to bless somebody. And the sad thing is, and I, I told you guys this, I got almost all the credit and I didn't do anything. And I, t- I said, I'm like, I didn't do anything. I didn't win the award. I didn't cook the chili. I guess I should be applauded for tasting the chili. I did that, if that's something. But, but see, I, I think we all felt good about what we were able to do as the body of Christ. And that's the, to me, that's the beauty of watching the body of Christ work and watching people when they start to surrender their hearts and their life to God and you start to see the activity of the Spirit in their life and you see them serving in the things of God and the excitement and the blessing, also the spiritual warfare and the difficulty that comes with that and you get to sort of go through that by faith. This is all what it means to be a Christian. So in verse 26... He says, and if one member suffers, oh, I already read that, 27. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So nobody can think and put themselves, if you're a Christian, notice you don't become the body of Christ. This is a a stated fact and a done deal. You are the body of Christ. Now, whether you participate by using your gift to build up the body of Christ, now that's a matter between you and God, but that doesn't change the fact that you are the body of Christ. You may be a part of the body of Christ that's not functioning, and that's why when the Lord begins to move in someone's life and there's recognition of the body of Christ, about a particular person that God's moving and working in their life. And you, there's the recognition of gifts that the person has. And, and then that, that person is, is uh, sort of ratified in what God is doing in their life. And they're given an opportunity to use their gift in that particular way within the church and a person doesn't do it, it can be devastating. It's a denying of the calling. And that, you know, of course, means that that individual is praying about it and they're confirmed about it and how God has shown them. And when we answer the call, 
then we can see the blessing, I should say, the blessing by all. So when we answer the call, we can see the blessing. The blessing is seen by all. But it's very hurtful to the whole body, the denial of the calling. And in my experience, when one... It's obvious that God is calling them to do something and they reject it and don't do that. It usually doesn't go well for them after that. Similar to a non-functioning body part. What happens if my leg, my right leg, say, if I don't use it? It works. It's fine, I just don't like to use it because I like it to rest all the time. What happens? It atrophies, right? What happens is I start to, I'll start to lose circulation and blood flow and that becomes a very weak part of my body and if my body's going this way and my leg is saying no, well, what happens to my whole body? My whole body is affected. And that's why it's so important that, that each individual takes this seriously and understands and seeks the Lord as to what the Lord's will is for each individual's life and within the body of Christ. In verse 28, he says, And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, Second, prophets. Third, teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts. Gifts of healings, helps, administrations. Varieties of tongues. These are gifts that we have spoken of. And notice that these are all parts that God gives the local body of Christ to function correctly and properly. But then he says... Is everybody an apostle? Now, this isn't an apostle in the sense of the 12 apostles. This is a, that's a whole different thing. This is an apostle in the sense of those that God calls to plant a church, calls to a particular, start a particular ministry or something like that. And he says, are all that? That's a rhetorical question. Is everybody that? Is In verse 29, is every, everybody prophets? Those who speak forth the word of God? Is everybody teachers? Are all workers of miracle? Do all have the gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So what he's saying is, and this is important because one of the misunderstandings in regards to spiritual gifts is, say, tongues, for example. There is a teaching that that is the sign that you're actually saved, that you speak in tongues. Is it possible to be saved and not speak in tongues? Absolutely. So he's saying that there's variations of these gifts and there's variations of the possessors of those gifts. And the beauty of that is that God has made us interdependent upon one another that individually that we use our gift and we use it to build up the body of Christ. So isn't that interesting? So God, he gives us these gifts and they are primarily to be used within the body of Christ. So the idea of an independent, I'm not into organized religion, I'm not into, you know, being face-to-face with people, I'm not into, I just do my own thing. That is completely unbiblical. The, the church is meant for people to be get together, to exercise their gift, and to build up the whole body. So he's telling us that we should earnestly desire these things. Doesn't mean we'll get them all, but our attitude is, Lord, I want to be 
supremely used any way you want me to be used. I want to participate in the work that you're doing in my heart so that I can build up other people's hearts. So then now he transitions into chapter 13. So he says, now with all this talk about gift, he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, that's agape love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Paul begins to give us the overriding principle of the use of all our gifts. It's possible that we can be in love with our gift. It's possible that we can just love doing the thing that God has gifted us to do, whatever that may be, but we don't love the people that were to exercise that gift towards. What, he, what he's saying is that it, if it doesn't matter if we exercise a supernatural gift unless it has love behind it. So, for example, so say someone has the gift of teaching. So, say I have the gift of teaching, but I don't like any of you. I just like to teach. It makes me feel good to teach, but I can't stand you guys. It's funny, isn't it? But it, it happens. It happens. It happens a lot. A lot of times we wonder, like we call doing worship, we call that like a spiritual gift. It's not playing guitar is not a spiritual gift. Playing drums is not a spiritual gift. You won't read that in any of these playing piano, singing, it's not a spiritual gift. But one uses their spiritual gift as they do that. So, and if those who are leading worship up here, they just love to jam. And that happens a lot, right, Steve? They just... They like to crank out music, man. But they don't love you. I have a serious problem with that. And that, that happens a lot. When it's just about the music, but then the musician doesn't care about the people. It's just about the music. This is what Paul is saying. It's ironic, he, he says, if, if you speak in tongues but don't have love, you're like sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You're just a bunch of noise. So everything that we do has to be done in love. And as we exercise our gift, we exercise it in love. We exercise it with the love of one another. So he says, he continues with that thought. He says in Though we have the gift of prophecy and we understand all mysteries and knowledge and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains but I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I even give my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. What is love like? What does love do? What is biblical love? In verse 4, love suffers long. It's interesting, it starts with that. Because when you start mixing with people, that's one of the first things you'll start to notice. Feels like suffering. Not everybody's nice the way I want them to be to me. 
Not everybody acts towards me the way I like them to act. And it's now requiring me to suffer, but not just suffer, to suffer a long time. If you're going to be part of the body of Christ, you're going to have to get this down. It's hard. We are messy. We are still fallen. We are not fully sanctified. And so love will suffer a long time. Love won't jump ship immediately when we have a problem with someone. Love values another individual more than oneself. That's why agape is used here. Because we agape, that means that we love regardless of what we get back. That we love sacrificially. You know what's interesting? This, I think this is how this works. A lot of times when we love, even Paul said, the more I love you, the more you hate me. So agape love works to where the, when we give out love, there's in that act its own fulfillment and enjoyment. Worldly love is always conditional. And what we get back is what we have a tendency to give. But godly love is, is just a one-sided action. And you can see how much we need the Spirit to fill our heart in order to do that. It's interesting in all, all of these categories of love, there's not an exception or a justification for not loving. So we can't say, well, my childhood, if you would have known what I went through, you would understand why I don't love everybody. I need to go back and work through my childhood and see therapists and counselors if I'm going to love people. But that's a big reason that I stay away from people. You don't see that here. You don't see that, well, you don't, you don't know how this person has done me wrong. You don't see any excuse or justification, but you do see that God supernaturally enables us to do this. And you'll have a hard time justifying any sort of reason not to suffer long with someone else when you understand how Christ has suffered for you and I as the example. So love continues on. Love continues to love. Then he says, love is kind. So that's the positive part. So the negative part is love suffers long. It doesn't do something. The positive part is that it's actually actively kind. So it doesn't respond, pardon the pun, in kind. It responds with kindness. So one who truly has the love of God in their heart, and only through that can they actually be kind to somebody that's not treating them well. So you're suffering long with them, and it is it does say suffering. You're suffering long, but then you're actually kind to them. This is what love looks like. Then he says, Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. In other words, look at me, making yourself the center of attention, the center attraction, putting yourself above other people, 
that sort of thing. Then he says, it's not puffed up. Remember, the Corinthians had a problem with knowledge that puffed them up. They knew things that made them feel superior. And he's saying that's not love. So you have to be careful. Intellectual superiority or just having more knowledge than someone doesn't give anybody a reason to look down or treat them any differently. He says in verse 5, love does not behave rudely. That word's very interesting. Rudely, the word means to act in a way that's not fitting for the situation. So to act in a way that's sort of out of custom or not considering the setting and the situation and the environment, all that, just acting in a way that's so far out of what is normal and customary. And that's what happens a lot of times with a believer. They get treated rudely, uncustomarily, unkind towards simply because their faith in Jesus Christ. And even with family members and friends and people, they'll feel it's okay to treat you like that because you're a Christian. He says it does not, in verse 5, does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. And it thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. So different than the understanding of worldly love or the definition that the world's giving us about love, love does not embrace evil. Love doesn't ignore what's right or what's true. But love functions in a way where one wants someone to know and understand and live their life according to truth. So this all-encompassing idea of love that doesn't have any regard to what's true and right in the eyes of God, that's not love, that's actually hate. And so when you see many Christians and many churches saying that they accept and agree with all people that have all beliefs, they're actually hating that person because love cares enough about the person to tell them the truth. So let's read that again. Love does not rejoice in iniquity but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So that's kind of a a tough scripture there. What does that mean? So love bears all things. What that means is the person who's loving is not reacting and lashing out, but they're bearing with what is going on in their uh, relationships with other people that aren't correct or not they're not treating them correctly. So they're, they're willing to, to bear that. And then when it says it believes all things, well, we just got done in the whole book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, telling the Corinthians about the importance of them changing what they're doing. What that means is, is that we're to generally have an optimistic view, not a pessimistic view, optimistic view about people and how they will see and change to walk with God. Love does that. Love sees and and believes that God is going to work and turn that person around. Love doesn't stop believing and lose faith in that. And then he says, 
it hopes all things. So that hope is looking to the future and hope is then believing that there's good to come. And then it endures all things. And that means just pretty much it puts up with all things. And then he says, love never fails. And that, that word fails means ends. And we're getting to the end right now. But you really, this is a very important part to tune in on. We just have a few verses to go. But this is, this is the crescendo to the whole thing. This is the very controversial part. So love, love never fails. Why does love never fail or never end? Because that'll be going on into eternity in heaven. He says, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. And that word fail means that they will be idle or useless. So prophecies, what are prophecies? So prophecies are something that we need now that speaks forth the things of God. So he's saying there will be a time where those will become useless. He says, whether there are tongues, what are tongues? Tongues are a supernatural language given to believers to pray to God for personal edification. He's saying those will cease. That word cease means stop. He says, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. That, mean, that word vanish away means idle or useless. So, he, and so there's certain things he's saying that are, are going, not going to exist anymore. And you'll notice those things are things that we need now until Jesus comes back. Those are things that we need now, the gifts of the Spirit and these particular ones that he's, he is speaking of. We need them now for the growth of the church, the strength of the church, for the fruit of the church. We need all of those things now. But there's going to be a time where they end. So here's the controversial verse. He says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will become done away with. So something's going to happen to where those particular spiritual gifts are going to not be needed. And he says, done away with. And he says in verse 11, he gives this to explain this. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, their mirrors were not like our mirrors. You couldn't see very well yourself in a mirror. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, now when you look in a mirror, you can kind of make yourself out, but not very good. That's how it is now. But then, so then another time, face to face, now... I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. So when is that? That's when we're face to face with God. He's saying that. So in this life and the childish things, we're, we're living in a time of spiritual immaturity in a sense where we don't fully know. So there's going to be a time when we're face to face with God that we are going to be, we're going to know as we are known. That we're not going to need faith. Do you know you're not going to need faith in heaven? You're not going to need faith in heaven. You're not going to need prophecy in heaven. You're not going to need to speak in tongues in heaven. Now you do. Now we do. But when Jesus comes back, we're not. Or if we go to be with Jesus, we're not going to need those things. So what is the perfect? The perfect is when Jesus comes back again. We have several verses, I don't have time to get into those, that, that use that same word, the perfect, that refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But that's what it means. It's not the completion of the canon of Scripture. Or it's not 
when the apostles, the 12 apostles were finished. It can't be that because he's saying we see in a mirror dimly, but when we see face to face, we're not going to need those things. So hopefully that's clear. And then verse 13, so now abide faith, hope, and love. So those are the big things now. But the greatest of these is love. And so as we finish this chapter, we still have chapter 14 still speaks about the gifts. But man, this is a message for our church. We need it. We need it. And to sum it all up, love is the greatest thing. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you can endow us fresh and full with the love of Christ. And may that love of Christ enable us to love one another with the love of Christ. We pray for every hurt, every slight, every mistreatment. We pray, Lord, that we would be above all those things and be able to agape love and exercise our gifts in that agape love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great night. And Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.